0: Good morning. John, am I up? I'm up. Ron had, like said, nothing to do with the King James. It right, was good enough for the Apostle Paul, good enough for us. Oh, welcome. It's uh, my <clears throat> happy privilege to be here this morning and be able to share with you God's Word. I'm not sure if I'm going to be a book in. I think Bob may be bringing us something from the New Testament next week on the holiness of God. But uh, really, this does, without any planning at all, tie into Tom's short series on being like Jesus. And uh, Bob's preaching to us in the holiness of God. This morning, our passage will be in 1 Peter from the first chapter. We'll be focusing on verses 13 through 21. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, I don't really have any overheads. You've got three points. It will not be hard to, to follow them, I trust. And if you would, you can turn to the new text the book of 1 Peter. Now, before we start, let me talk a little bit about the book of 1 Peter. It's a book that I love, it's a book that I've been, uh, just. it speaks to my heart, perhaps maybe because I identify in many ways with the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter's readers here were believers. They were probably they were scattered in the land that we now know as Turkey, the land of Pontius and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were the, were the regions of Rome, but we call it Turkey today. And the circumstance they find them in is that Rome had probably recently burned. And Nero was blaming the Christians, and they were beginning to suffer, were beginning to endure hardship, for the sake of the name that they uh, that they had, the name Christian. They were beginning to suffer. And Peter wrote with a concern. He did not write to tell them about the weather and uh, where he was or about how the kids were doing, but Peter wrote with a reason. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 12, Peter gives them the reason. He says, I've written to you by Sylvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting you, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter was concerned for these people that they would stand firm in the grace of God, that they would not waver as they began to suffer for the name of Christ. And Peter begins his passage with a series of statements. But maybe we need to ask, so so what is this occasion what does this occasion for this book have to do with our circumstance? In preparing for this message and in corresponding with my daughter, she, she sent me an email. We were talking about this. And she said something. She said, Dad, I, I look at myself and my generation. we we'll take a lot of things seriously. But most of them are the wrong things. Environment, our favorite TV shows, pop culture, homosexuality, it seems that if we waste a lot of time, we get caught up in having fun and absorbed in ourselves. She goes on to talk about a number of things. But what struck me is she wrote, we get caught up, she said, in having fun. And I'm going to say she gets caught up and absorbed in herself or ourselves. And I think that is a natural human tendency. It does not matter our generation. It does not matter our age. But we tend to get caught up in ourselves instead of being caught up in what Christ has called us to be caught up in, and by way of Peter calling us to in this book. Peter wrote with a purpose. He begins with a series of statements. And I want to read you from the first chapter. I'm going to start in verse 3. I want you to listen to his praise. And as we get to our passage in 13, listen closely. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. A salvation ready to be revealed in no the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold, that itself perishes when it is tested by fire, may may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. For you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that was sent from heaven. Things into which even angels long to look. Now for our text. Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter begins this book to these believers with a series of statements, descriptive of the reader's salvation, a great salvation, he says. He speaks how they've been shown a great mercy. That they've been caused to be born again to a living hope. That they have an inheritance that will not perish, that will not fade, that will not decay. He says, you have even been had your faith tested through suffering. That is a gift. So that it may show that your faith is genuine and you may know. He says, you have a love of Christ. And it gives you cause for rejoicing and glory. It is a privileged revelation you have that the prophets looked into their own writings, trying to determine it. Even the angels peered down, trying to understand how God would fulfill His promise and redeem a lost humanity. Even the angels longed to understand this. And Peter says, this is the salvation you have. This salvation was the cause of your joy inexpressible. This salvation is what gives cause to the believer's life. So if this is our cause, if this is the cause for our joy, if this is the cause, this is the reason for our being, what is to be the response in the believer's life? What is to be our response? How does a believer respond to this salvation? this great salvation? Let me say it this way. What is to be your response to this great salvation? What we're about to look at is not optional. We're about to look at three commands. Three commands that Peter gives us. Three imperatives for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter is exhorting these believers to respond, to respond to the great salvation that they already enjoy. Peter is not talking about the gaining of salvation, but he is talking about a response, the response of a life that comes from the joy of their salvation. Our lives should flow from this mighty, saving act of God Peter moves from a series of statements of fact there in those first first 12 verses. He just states fact, 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 fact. And then he moves. He moves from that actuality, that describing their salvation to commanding a response of obligation and duty. And I also say that Peter is making the assumption that it isn't is a re, is a action or a response will come from an inexpressible joy that is in their life. It is not a grudging duty. It is not a, a teeth gritting, grimacing, gutted out duty. But it is a joy. Is a joyful duty. So this morning I want us to look at how the saved should live. How should the saved live? Or Responding to so great a salvation. Our passage this morning begins with a, a small transitional word. And we've all heard before. Therefore. And when we see a therefore, what is the therefore? Therefore. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, therefore, is the hinge that Peter pivots on. He's given them the facts of their salvation. But it's the hinge in which he springs into his exhortation. Is an exhortation to hope, to holiness, and fear, our text says, or reverence to God. Honor in the Lord, if you want to stay with an H. hope, holiness, and honor. It is a threefold exhortation. It begins with the word, "Therefore: Set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. Set our hope. This is the imperative. it's not an option. We're to set our hope on the Jesus Christ. Hope is not an emotion that arises based on our circumstances. Hope for the believer is to be one of the three virtues that we are to be characterized by. 1 right? Corinthians 13. These three things endure. Hope, or faith, love, and hope. These abide, Paul says. A steadfastness of hope was one of the three things that Paul remembered in prayer before God and thank God for it because it was demonstrated in the Thessalonians' lives just a couple weeks ago. Let's read that. 1 Thessalonians, right there in the first verse, in the first chapter. Paul says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. This is nothing new and is what we do be characterized by. Us. This hope is also what Peter blesses a blessed God for. Go back to the first, uh, right there, chapter, verse 3 of chapter 1. I love it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. He is blessed and God blesses. Right? Peter blesses a blessed God. And he says, and according to his great mercy, that he has caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope. Is a living hope, it says in verse 1-3. Uh, Romans 15 says about this hope, that it is through the scriptures that we have endurance and encouragement that we might have hope. So if you want hope, go to the scriptures. First Thessalonians 5.8 says that we have, as a piece of our spiritual armor, a helmet. The hope of our salvation. Jesus is our hope. Well, that's nice. We're to hope, right? But Peter gives us a couple things to be ready to hope. In what manner are we to hope? How are we to ready ourselves to hope? Peter gives us the manner in which we are to approach this aspect of the Christian life. Two parallel phrases of how we are to fix our hope. Look right there. Right there. He says what? That we are to prepare our minds for action. We are to prepare our minds for action. Literally, it says this. Gird up the loins of your minds. That's what the King James says. Gird up the loins of your minds. (laughs) It's a metaphor for aggressive activity. Then that Bible says this. Get ready. Get ready to hope. So what's the word picture? What is this picture saying? The loins of our mind, the center of our mind where the strength of your mind dwells. Physically, our loins are here, right? Physically our loins are here. It's where kind of the center of our strength, the center of our balance is. You know, we have got we do now we we know about core exercises. That's the big thing, right? Do exercises to strengthen your core to support your back and And to support your spine. and That's a big thing because we are a society that sits around a lot. So we need to do things to strengthen the core of our body. And this is the same picture for the core of our mind. We've got an entire fitness uh, system that's dedicated to this. You you ladies, if you do it, you know it's called Pilates. It's an entire system dedicated to strengthening that core of your body. In the same way, Peter says, the core of your mind. This is what we are to prepare, what we are to gird up, what we are to keep from being loose. It is the center of our body. We are to ready that part of our body, ready that part of our mind, be ready to move, be ready to fight, be prepared to act. and we are to gird this up we are to gird our minds. Second Corinthians 10:5 says that we are to take every thought captive for Christ. Everything, everything in our mind needs to be focused on having it ready to hope in Christ, to gird up, to truss up, to belt up. There's a picture in the Middle East, right? Where the clothing was long and flowing, robes. And around the house where you were relaxing or with friends, you let them them hang out, right? You let the clothes flow. It was comfortable. Let the air move. It was hot. There wasn't air conditioning. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, take your cloak and gird it up. It's a picture of wrapping it around you, You're going on a trip, they'd put a belt around them with, with, with pouches or armor, if they were a the soldier, to go walking. But the biggest, the, the, not the biggest, the, 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 the most way they could get ready was a soldier. Not only would he belt up his flying garments, but he would reach down, he would take his garment, he would pull it up between his legs, and he would tuck it into his, into his belt. And he could act. And he could move. He was ready for action. He was ready for anything. Nothing would encumber him. Nothing would trip him. In the same way, that is what we should do with our minds. We should do the things, stay in the Word, stay focused on Christ, so that nothing will encumber us in responding to the salvation and living out our life for Christ. You know, uh, I've never read the book Harry Potter. My daughter is a fan of it. And one of the things she told me said, Dad, there's a scene in it. It's at the end of it. And the kids were always being trained to resist the dark force. Now, you can set Harry Potter aside. But as the kids were being trained to resist, they had a professor. And he would always holler out, Constant vigilance! Constant vigilance. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready. Be constantly vigilant. Be ready to act. Be ready to move. So not only are we to ready our minds for action, but we're also to have a certain manner in our thoughts. We are to live. We are to approach our lives in a manner of controlled thought. Sober thought. Peter says we are to be sober-minded. The issue here is not keeping from drunkenness. The emphasis, the emphasis is the opposite of, the, of intoxication. We are to be in control of all of our faculties. Self-control, clarity, discipline thought, balance in our priorities. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter says this, Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right? Keep your prayers in love. Don't be... Don't let everything from the outside cause your mind to flutter about, but to be sober-minded. You've got, on the one hand, you can have your mind cluttered with worries and anxieties. You can have your mind cluttered with self-indulgence. Right? You can also have your mind cluttered with, I'm going to call it, religious ecstasy. Right? We can be so caught up into just out of control... Joy, so to speak. Out of control, happiness. Getting caught up in the things that our minds quit focusing on what we are called for. puts focusing on Scripture. We need to keep ourselves focused. We need to keep ourselves in self-control. Verse 8 of chapter 5, Peter says this. Be sober-minded. Why? Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. So we're to be sober-minded so that our prayers will be effective, but we're also to be sober-minded so that we can be on the defensive, ready for the devil's attack. Paul charges uh, Timothy in his second letter. He says what? Always be sober-minded for the sake of the gospel. Keep your wits about you. Be sober-minded so that you can do your work. Do not be intoxicated with this world, but disengage from its anxious cares. Be sober, steady, keep your thoughts in control. So the command is to set our hope, to fix our hope. We're to trust with perfect confidence, to hope fully until the end. The Christian life of hope is not a half-hearted, dispirited hope. It's not a Dallas Cowboy hope. Okay? Alright? It's not, I hope this happens. No, it is a firm, fixed Confident in the, confidence in the character of Jesus Christ and what he can do. And why? Why can our life of hope be firm and calm and fixed? Well, he tells us why. It's because the object of our hope, we're to set our hope, we're to fix our hope on what? The grace that has to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just a hope that's out there in Never, Neverland, but we are to fix our hope on the grace that is to come, on the final revealing of Jesus Christ, on the apocalypses, on the apocalypse. He will return at that final, full, revealing of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is the grace that is to come to us. Right. So what is this grace? Is it merely future? But do we experience that grace even now? Do we get a taste of it even now? Yes. This grace we experience even now. Because we experience His electing grace. His redeeming grace. His justifying grace. His pardoning grace. It is an adopting grace. All this now grace will be completed at the final revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be that freeing from sin grace. When we won't sin, we won't be affected by sin. And we will be able to fully worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus, Paul says it like this. Turn to Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says this. For the grace now of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce in godliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the grace that we are to fix our hope on. The grace that we experience now, and that final grace in the future. That is what we are called to do. That is our first command set, fix our hope. But our minds prepared, our minds sober on the grace that is to come to us. Peter says, fix your hope on Jesus. So now to Peter transitions to his second command. He gives them a second command. He says this, having exhorted them to fully set their hope on Jesus Christ, their minds ready. Peter says this, verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the second command be holy. And specifically, he says, Be holy in what? Your conduct be holy in your conduct. This is the second imperative. The believer is to be holy. Peter begins by addressing the believers in a particular way. He says this, as obedient children. He calls them obedient children. Literally, what Peter says is this, as children of obedience. Notice, It's not necessarily an adjective describing them. Children of obedience. It's what they are in possession of. It's what they are characterized by. He is saying they are children in possession of a particular character or nature. And that is obedience. Children characterized by obedience. It is a simple assumption by Peter that a child of God is characterized by obedience. Ephesians 2.2 2 says this, that the sons of disobedience, those who are Satan are at work in, the sons of disobedience, we are to be sons of obedience. A child of God was not saved by obedience that he did. He was saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ. But the child of God was saved for obedience. Verse 2 says that we are what? right there we are sanctified in the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ verse 22 the first chapter says this having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart be holy for i am holy romans 1:5 paul says this that, we, that he has received apostleship for the purpose of bringing the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus to the nations. That's why Paul had been made a, a, an apostle, so that the nations would be obedient to the sake, or to, would be obedience to the name of Jesus. Obedience indicates our true character. Obedience shows who we are. Obedience is not separated from faith. It flows from faith. Peter does not conceive of a Christian life of mere mental consent. Peter says a Christian is obedient. Verse 13, chapter 2. Be subject, be obedient for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18, same chapter. Slaves, be subject, be obedient to your masters with all respect. Chapter 3, verse 1, Wives, likewise, be obedient to your own husbands. Verses 5 and 6, Sarah is commended for her submissiveness, for her, her obedience, to the point of being given away to two other men at two different times as her wife. Right. Verse 5, chapter 5. Says this: Likewise, you are, who are younger, be subject to the elders among you. So, those of us who are younger—and I'm still going to count myself as younger today—we are to be obedient to our elders, to those in the church that God has determined to put over us. We are to be obedient to them as they are obedient to Christ in His Word. Now, there's a negative. And there's a positive to this command. Okay, Peter presses forward. What does he say? Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. We are not to be pressed into the mold of this world. We've been called out of this world. Romans 12 verse 2 says what? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are not to... When the people see us, they should not see the world. We should be conformed to who? Christ. Right? Do not be conformed to your former ignorance, Peter says. In Ephesians 4, Peter says, We were once darkened in our minds. We were ignorant of the things of God. We were blind. First Thessalonians 4, 5, he says, As Gentiles, in our former lust, in our former ignorance, we did not know God. We have been called out of that. Titus 3, verse 3 says this, that we were all once foolish. We were all once ignorant. That is what we've been called out of. We've been called out of that ignorance, out of that former way of life. Do not be conformed, vast and negative. Do not be conformed to this world. But, before there's a do, there was a do not. But now he says what? Be conformed to Christ's image. We are called to be holy. This is Peter's second imperative. His second command. Be holy. Right? But he gives us a reason. Why? Because God is holy. It is not merely a command of not doing. Right? But it is a command of doing. Our holiness as believers is not merely a matter of setting aside. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. But we are be characterized by what we do. Right? We need to be known by our doing. Doing. We are to be holy in all of our conduct. Right? That's what I took from reading the email of my daughter. Is it? Is it? We can just get caught up in this world, and even some folks as we set aside the things of this world. We don't get busy doing the things of Christ. We don't get busy doing the things that are holy, the conduct that speaks well of Him. What is to be the ground of this calling to be holy? What is the ground? Be holy in all your conduct. Why? Why? Why should I be holy? Because it's written, You shall be holy because I am holy. If God's word says it, there is no other reason why. But why does he say it? Right. Be imitators of God as beloved children. He doesn't just give us, Be holy because I'm holy and leave it as that. Just as a small son imitates his father in his mannerisms, maybe dressing like him as a small boy, I would come home as a small boy and Jonathan would be dressed up in camouflage and be carrying around guns and you know my, my former days. You know, I hear about other dads, you know, they, they come home and their sons dress like them, their son wants to be like them. Well, in the same way, we are to be like our Father in heaven. We are to walk as he walked. We are to carry himself as he carries himself. We are to imitate our Father. We are to be holy as He is holy. We are called to be holy. Last week, when Bob spoke, we saw that we had a hard time defining this word. See, so it's easy for me to sit here and say "be holy." Well, what does that look like? We had a hard time defining this word because usually we define things by simile or description, and it's just kind of hard to say, God is like, because God is, right? I like to say that the word holiness modifies every other aspect or attribute of God. When we see God's wrath, it's holy wrath. When we see Him show mercy, it's holy, fully giving mercy. When we see God's righteousness, it is holy righteousness. When we see him execute justice, it is holy justice with nothing to the scale weighted left or right. When we see him love, it is a holy love that is pure and self-denying. Yes, there is a holiness displayed in the blazing glory of the throne room. Isaiah saw it. Moses saw it. On the Mount of Transfiguration for a moment, the disciples saw that glory, that holiness slightly revealed. John saw it in Revelation. Yes, there is an aspect to his holiness of that blazing glory that someday, someday, we will behold. But now I think we see God's glory. We maybe most easily see his glory and appreciate it by what he does. We see it in his conduct. God is busy working. Jesus tells us in John 15 that my Father is busy working until now and I am busy working. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Holy Trinity, they are busy working. They are busy and holy in all their conduct. There is not a passivity in God. There should not be a passivity in His children. As a believer... Of those of you who name the name of Christ, there should not be a passivity in you being holy and reflecting God's image. You know, one of the phrases I hear nowadays is, whatever, right? whatever. I think Steve Novakovich told me there's a, there's a hair mousse the kids can use now. It's called whatever. Yeah? Put it in your hair so it stays in one place and always looks like whatever, like you just woke up. <clears throat> As believers, we are not called to live a life of whatever. We are not called to live a life of whatever. We live in a culture of whatever. Undisciplined whatever. You are called to be busy being holy in your conduct. Kids, on the playground, in school, with your friends, in Sunday school. Are you busy being holy in the way you treat others? Teenagers? Are you busy being holy? Being friends to the kid that is maybe not the most popular in the school? Right? Are you busy being holy, respecting your parents, not only what you do in front of them, but the way in which you speak of them in front of your friends, honoring them? Young folks? Are you, are you busy in being holy? And what you do and what you say, and how you dress? How you speak, are you busy being holy? Those of us who are not so young, are we busy being holy? How do we conduct ourselves in our business? How do we treat people? How do we treat those that work for us? How do we treat those who we work for? How do we treat those who are our peers? Are we busy being holy in our conduct? God's people are called to live in holiness because of our relationship with God. He is our Father. Turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. The Lord spoke to Moses. He said, Speak this to the congregation of Israel. Verse 2 You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But he doesn't leave it there. He says what? You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Don't make any idols of metal. I am the Lord your God. I am holy. You should leave the corners of your field and make some grapes of your vine for the poor so that they may eat. I am the Lord your God. In parentheses, not said, but he's saying I am holy because of who I am. You shall not steal or deal falsely or profane my name. I am the Lord your God. You shall pay fair wages to your servants. I am the Lord your God. You shall not be partial to the poor, and you shall not defer to the great. All men are treated equal. Why? I am the Lord your God. I am holy. You shall not go against the life of your neighbor. Why? I am the Lord your God. Why are they to do all these things? Why is all of Israel's life... Why do the children of God, the children of Israel... Why were they called to reflect Yahweh in every aspect of life? They were to separate from sin and behave in a way that blessed others. Why? I am the Lord... I am Yahweh. He's saying this, I am the Holy One of Israel. This is the reason for your conduct. I have chosen you to reflect me among the nations. Today we are called to reflect God's holy image. We live in a fallen world, but we have been called out of it. Colossians 3.17 says, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Romans 8.29 says this, that we have been predestined to be conformed to His image. And that starts now. 1 Corinthians 15.49 says this, Just as you have been born in the image or of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, because we're His. We are born in the image of the man of dust. We shall be the image of the man of heaven. We are not called to passivity, but to an act of holiness. Be holy in all your conduct. Tom said it like this for four weeks. Serve like Jesus served. Love like Jesus loved. Forgive like Jesus forgave. Trust a father like Jesus trusted the father. Sum it up. Do like Jesus did. Be holy, for I am holy. That is our standard. That is our standard of conduct. Be be Jesus before people. Be holy because Jesus is holy. So that we see we have a great salvation. And because of that great salvation, we are called to respond. We are to respond by fixing our hope and the grace that is to be brought to us at the final revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be holy in our conduct. Now verse 17. What is that third command that Peter gives to us? And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear at the time of your exile. This is our third imperative. Fear God. Honor him in all that we do. God our Father will be our judge. He is not a respecter of persons in that sense. He fairly judges. His scales are equal. We have been saved. We have our salvation. There's going to be a time when he's going to open the books. The books. And he's going to look at what we've done for him. We are to live lives in reverent fear. Do not turn from honoring God. Not an abject fear. Not terror, children. But there should be reverence in all that we do. There should be a knowing that there will be a final judgment. where We will all have what we have done assessed. and will be assessed by the Father. There will be a standard by which we will all have been judged. What am I doing today? What is my attitude? What is my action? What is my heart? Am I honoring God in all I do? Do I fear Him? That's a good thing. But now Peter comes and he wraps it up. He says, here is your hope. Okay, He's given us three commands, right? Fix your hope. Be holy, honor God. Well, if you're like me, you say, I I, I can't do that. I feel a little undone, right? Like Isaiah. Or or if you're prideful, you think, oh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I'm getting God's favor. But Peter doesn't leave it at that. He moves on, right? He moves on. Let's go to verse 18. Now Peter, Peter brings it full circle. He brings it back. He says this. Knowing. Knowing. Right? Fix your hope. Be holy. Honor God. Knowing this. Knowing that you have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So what knowing, what knowledge does Peter call his readers to remember in all of this? These verses are causal. They give the reason the readers should live in reverence in the near proximity. But they also give the readers the reason they should live all of their lives. Quite frankly, these verses give us the grounds on which the reader can base his entire response to such a great salvation. It is these verses, they are the ones that book in the first 12 verses, right? They received a great salvation. Respond, Peter says, knowing that you have already been redeemed. Why do you fix your hope? Why do you conduct yourself in a holy manner? Why do you live fearfully and reverently before God? Answer? Because you know that you have already been redeemed. Knowing that it is not yourselves that saves you, but it is the work of Jesus Christ. He paid the ransom. He paid the debt. He redeemed you. Before the foundation of the world, He elected you, He chose you, and now the purchase price has been paid. And what were we bought from? We were bought out of our futile ways. King James says, we are bought out of our vain conversation, that worthless way of life and speaking and manner. We are bought out of our empty ways. We are bought out of the way that was powerless to save us, for there is nothing within ourselves. We were going down the road to hell, and He bought us out. He redeemed us. The purchase price was not merely silver or gold, the most precious things in this world. No, silver and gold, earthly precious, yet insufficient to cover our debt. So great was our offense against a holy God. That's the negative. Our offense was against the Holy God. Silver or gold could not buy us back. Silver or gold could not buy us off the slave block. It could not redeem our souls from death. The price to cover that offense, the price to cover our sin, that price to cover our futile life, the price it required, that was required, was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God is the cause. God is the redeeming one. It is the work of Jesus that saves. Nothing else. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He owns us. He has rights on us. He has the right to our lives. He is the master. We are the slave. Thus he has a right to command us. Because we are owned by him. But dear believers, we are more than a slave. John 15, he says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. I have called you friends. And it goes on, it says, and not only friends in John 1 and 1 John, says, not only friends, but children of God, sons of God, Galatians 4 7 says this. Galatians 4 7 says, let's read that. Not merely slaves, but children. And if we're a child, if we're his son, then he says this. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, a heir through God. He bought us. He owns us. We are his slave. But not merely a slave. We're his friends. But being his friends, he's made us his son. And for sons, we're heirs. And if we're heirs, we will one day reign with Christ. When? That final grace is revealed at his coming revelation. This is the so great a salvation that Peter spoke to. This is the salvation that should provoke our response. This is the salvation that calls us to set our hope firmly on Jesus Christ and the grace that is to come with Him. This is the response that calls us to be holy in all our conduct. This great salvation is what should cause us to honor God in all of our life and all that we do. And if you can't say that, if you can't say that you know such a salvation, then there's the gospel. The gospel message is this. You're on the slave block of sin. You are condemned. You are dead in your sin and trespasses. And there is no hope for you. You cannot earn your way out. You must trust in that great salvation that Jesus Christ did on the cross. He purchased us. He bought your sin. Turn to Him. Confess your sin. Call on Him as your Lord and Savior. And you will be saved. And you will know that you have been saved with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you have been saved for a joy that is inexpressible. For those as believers, our response is clear. Our response is clear. We are to set our hope on Jesus. We are to be holy in all of our conduct. We are honor God in all that we do, knowing all the time that we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and He loves us. That is what we've been called to do. There's a song that I like. It says, Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me. Out of the millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good haven't you been good? Haven't you been so good? Haven't you been so good to me? Let's pray. gracious Father, we come to you. And Lord, it is hard to express our joy of the salvation that we have. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work on the cross on our behalf. And, Lord, I pray that we would, in the walk of this life, in every aspect of it, that we would fix our hope on him, that we would not get caught up with the cares of this world, the legitimate pain that we are called to endure, but we would fix our hope in the grace that will to come. And, Lord, I pray that we would examine all of our conduct and we would reflect you before this fallen world. When people see you or see us, they would see you. And it would cause them to want to, to know you. And, Lord, might we honor you in all that we do, Lord. Lord, might we fear you and come before you knowing, knowing that it is not our works that make us right before you in any way, shape, or form, but the precious blood of your Jesus Christ, your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.